the National Archives podcast series. Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, Clothing, Courtship and Consequences, presented by Dr. Maria Haywood. This podcast was recorded on the 13th of September 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. Can you all hear me? Good. Right, this afternoon I'm going to give you a brief introduction into clothing at the early Tudor court, and in particular to focus on how two individuals at court used clothes to create their appearance and to create an impression. Now, my talk is divided into three sections, as indicated by the title. So first of all, I'm going to give you an introduction to clothing at court, um, how we might research it, what it was like, what it was used for, and specifically thinking about that worn by the king and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Then to move on to the consequences of how they used their clothing. So courtship, she caught his eye, um, and then the long-term consequences of catching the king's eye. As you know, Henry is not necessarily a man that you wanted to catch the eye of, potentially. So Henry VIII is well known for two main things, really. Um, one, the Reformation, and two, six wives. And of those wives, Anne Boleyn is the one who has potentially provoked the most debate and discussion, probably in her own lifetime, but also as a afterwards, um, in terms of she's seen as the cause of the Reformation. She's seen as, um, and so dependent on your viewpoint, this means that she can either be seen as a source of um, bringing about religious change, or whether she can be seen as threatening the religious status quo in England. So what I would like to do to start off with is to think about what your Tudor monarch would have had in their wardrobe, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Tudor dress. So in terms of thinking about the male wardrobe, um, I've given you some examples here of actual surviving artefacts as they are much more accessible than clothing, either from descriptions in documents or um, from portraits. Um, but it's worth saying at the outset that we have none of Henry VIII's clothes surviving, and equally none that can be associated with Anne Boleyn. So in that sense, research on clothes for this period and for in these individuals is very difficult. However, to start off with, the principal male garments at this period were the doublet and hose. And I'm showing you an example from uh, 16th century Florence. And as you can see, the doublet was made of satin, the hose paned velvet, um, all couched with gold threads. So you have an ensemble, but also a difference between the fabric for the doublet and the fa fabric for the hose. The other principal garment for men at this period is the shirt, and as you can see from the example on the left, they were made from a full loom width of fabric, so they are very uh, spacious and widely cut. But they were also vehicles for display, because as you can see, at the cuffs and the neck and the neckline, these were the key areas where you would have embroidery if you were a man of high status. And in Henry's case, he was frequently given shirts of this type as New Year's gifts, usually by female female courtiers, often potentially with a view to showing off their needlework talents to the king. 
So these are the principal garments for men. Obviously, these would be worn with a range of accessories. So the bonnet at the top, um, gloves often to be carried. By this point, uh, the king would be starting to wear a sword and dagger, certainly from the 1530s onwards. And you would see him then down to, to shoes or boots if he was riding. Now, in contrast, the female wardrobe um, has the gown and kirtle. So those are the two outer garments. What I'm showing you here are some examples of the things you don't see in portraits. So these are the things that go on underneath and give women the shape that you can see in portraits. So the first or the main undergarment, um, a shift or smock, cut in a very similar way to the shirt, but with the addition of gauze at the side to give you extra width in, in the skirt. Um, and then over that, you would have had a pair of bodies. So this was to actually give you uh, the shape that you see in the, in the Tudor portraits. So the bust pushed up. Um, now, this is an example that has been found on the funeral effigy of Elizabeth I. Um, and they give us a very good example of how bodies might have been made. Now, obviously, this is a late 16th century pair. Um, but we know that they were wearing them in the earlier 16th century, too. Um, so to move on to think about how research can be undertaken on a royal wardrobe, um, we have three main sources of evidence, written material, visual material and surviving objects. Now for Henry himself, we have quite a lot of material and it falls into two main sorts. So there's this type of thing, which is a warrant, and a warrant would have ordered clothes. Now, in this case, this isn't an example for the king, but it has the basic format that they all have. So it starts off with the king's signature, either at the top, as in this example, or at the bottom. Um, it's addressed to the keeper of the great wardrobe, and it then itemises the objects that the individual in question is to be given. And usually it will stipulate how many yards of fabric, what type of fabric, what colour, what quality, and they stipulate quality by telling you how much per yard it should cost. So in that sense, um, the warrants are hugely useful if you're thinking about clothes in that it gives us a sense of how much fabric they'd have been cut from, what colour, what components would be used to make up the garment. However, they don't tell us much more. Now, one of the nice things about these warrants is that they're in English. At the end of the accounting year, um, the keeper of the great wardrobe would draw up an annual account. Um, and because these are formal financial documents, these are usually in Latin. We just have one example for Henry VIII and one for Henry VII that's in English. And these provide us with contrasting information about clothes at this period. Um, the beauty of these is they tell us who supplied the materials, who made those materials up into specific garments, and what they charged for doing this. So in that sense, written information is hugely useful in terms of getting a sense of quantity, colour, cost, materials, where those materials are coming from. Um, but they do assume knowledge on the part of the reader. Obviously, these are written by clerks working within the great wardrobe who had a detailed knowledge of the textiles and the furs at their disposal. So they don't provide lots of description because they know what they are, which can, of course, pose a problem for us when we come to look at them later because you need to know the specific terminology that they're using, in particular the specific technical textile terms and also the terms for clothing. Quite nice once you get your eye in, but it does take a little bit of practice. 
So written material like this is hugely useful. Now, I've focused here on the types of documents that you'll find within the Exchequer. In addition to this, hugely useful are descriptive accounts, such as Hall's Chronicle, for instance, where we actually get descriptions of clothes being worn on specific occasions. Now, the downside with these sometimes is that the person actually wasn't there and they are reliant on somebody else telling them what was worn, um, or they were rather a long way away and they didn't have a very good look at what was actually being um, portrayed. So sometimes you will find that when you're looking at the narrative accounts of events such as royal coronations, um, different observers and commentators will contradict each other because either they're reliant on second-hand information or they couldn't quite remember what they, were, what they would be, have been looking at. Now, if we take the sort of evidence that we get from these written sources, we can then develop our thoughts on clothing by looking at visual material. Now, portraiture is hugely useful for the 16th century historian who's interested in clothing. However, it does have some drawbacks. Many of the early 16th century portraits are only half length, such as this, so marvellous for telling us about the king's doublet, they also um, only show it from the front. So in that sense, you have no indication as to how these garments were cut at the back. Even so, um, they still do provide us with a sense of how garments were worn together and the sumptuousness that they would have conveyed. And this is one of the key reasons why clothing is so important at Henry VIII's court. It was seen as one of the key ways in which he could express ideas about magnificence. And magnificence is a word that you will often hear in association with early 16th century courts. It was the way in which a king was judged. He needed to be suitably magnificent to stand out from his fellows at court, and he needed to be on a par with his peers, i.e. the other rulers in Europe. So Francis I, King of France, and Charles V, King of Spain, and Holy Roman Emperor. One of the other big difficulties with portraiture is that many of the portraits that we have, and in, this is in particular in the case for when I come on to the portraiture of Anne Boleyn, um, they are later copies. So in that sense, the original doesn't survive. And we are then reliant on one artist copying the work of another. And so inevitably, that means that things might change. So they may decide to update the clothing to make the, the sitter look more fashionable. They may not understand the clothing of a previous period and so not quite depict it correctly. So portraiture can be a challenge. And one of the best places, if you're interested in Tudor portraiture, is to look at the website of the National Portrait Gallery. They have had a wonderful research project recently called Making Art in Tudor Britain. And there they provide you with a lot of the technical analysis that they've done on their Tudor portrait collection, looking at issues such as dating via dendrochronology, uh, looking at the pigment types, looking at underdrawing for alteration. And it's very useful to get a sense of which of the Tudor portraits were, that we have were painted at the time that they show and which are later copies. Um, however, not all visual material has the limitations that I highlighted. Here we have some sketches by Hans Holbein, um, one of the key resources for any historian 
studying clothing at Henry VIII's court. And as you can see, here we have full-length images, uh, three-quarter images, providing us with in details of, at the back. So uh, what was the waistline like at the back? Um, how was the fabric pleated? How did it hang? So we can supplement um, the formal portraits with evidence taken from these. But again, we need to be careful here. Holbein is painting, oh, so, sorry, sketching women on the continent. So potentially their style of dress would be slightly different to what you would see in England. And finally, the last group of objects, which is potentially the most useful and accessible, are surviving objects. Now, sadly, these are not Henry's. However, I can tell you that he did own pairs of silk-knitted hose, very similar to these, and we have uh, references to him purchasing them from an Italian uh, milliner in the 1540s, some in yellow silk, some in crimson silk, incorporating metal thread. And bear in mind that he was a curvaceous 50-plus inch waistline by that side. So he would have been quite a vision, I think, in yellow knitted hose. Um, and it's also worth thinking about these particular hose, that they're lined with leather. So wonderful for a cold day, not so comfortable, I suspect, for a hot summer day. Um, so, but of course, the beauty of being able to look at surviving garments is that they provide us with some of the things that we didn't have in the written accounts and some of the things that we didn't have in the visual evidence. So we can look at methods of construction. We can look at how the linings and interlinings are incorporated to make a garment, how the different elements fit together. So in this case, you can see those little lengths of ribbon around the waistline of the hose. Those are the points that would have attached the hose to the doublet. And one of the things that is never mentioned in the king's accounts for his hose um, is the codpiece. Um, now, but of course, they were a key feature of hose at this point as something that you will see in portraiture. And so that's why it's important, if you can, to look at evidence from three, all three sources in order to get as complete a picture as possible. Now, these are the only two items that can be tentatively associated with Henry. Um, so, the, at the top, we have a hawk hood in the collection of the Ashmolean, covered in cloth of tissue. And at the bottom, a hawking glove made of doe skin, embroidered with metal thread. And while these are tiny little accessories, probably the key thing that, to take away from them is that they provide us with a lot of evidence about this Back, coming back to this idea about magnificence. And in particular, the cloth of tissue. This was the most expensive fabric at the Tudor court. It was one of those that was a cloth of gold. So in other words, it incorporated threads that had um, a strip of gilded silver wrapped around it into the weave. But in addition to having the threads woven in into the flat design, they also had a whole series of loops. And you can see them here. So in that sense, it gave the fabric a very three-dimensional texture. It would have caught the light. And the key thing is that Henry has his own clothes made from this. He has furnishings, saddle trappers, but even tiny little accessories such as his hawk's hood were covered with these fabrics. So to move on to think about Henry VIII, um, as the, I said that this talk would be a comparison of how he dressed and how Anne chooses to dress. Um, 
Henry VIII's clothes were made for him within the great wardrobe. Now, the great wardrobe is the section of the royal household that was responsible for buying fabric and fur in bulk to make it up into clothing for the king and for members of his household and also to supply furnishings and items for the stable. Now, primarily, the great wardrobe works for the king. The queen had her own arrangements for supplying her own personal wardrobe. Um, so we, we find very little evidence within the king's accounts of items for any of his wives because those would have been dealt with separately. Now, on occasion, we do find him buying gifts for his wives. Um, so in particular, references to um, clothing that he gives to Catherine of Aragon in the early years of their marriage, um, gifts to Anne Boleyn. Um, to give you an example of something that he gives to Anne while she's queen, in 1535, there's an entry for a gown of checked green cloth of gold um, for our dearest wife, the queen, that was probably to be worn when the king was wearing a Spanish cloak of green tinsel embroidered and lined with green velvet. In addition to making things for the king, the great wardrobe also quite often made things for his children as well. So it's a hugely useful source. And the things that we learn from it are the sort of changing patterns in how the king chose to dress during the course of his reign. So, so not surprisingly, obviously, we see him make that transition from that live, fit 17-year-old at his accession um, to that much more heavily built, um, slightly old before his time king that we see in 1547. Um, so they're obviously the tailors have to accommodate the physical changes in the king's body. They also need to deal with issues relating to changes in styles and fashions. And while we th the idea of fashion as such is not one that you see in the 16th century in the way that you might in the 18th or 19th, they certainly were well aware of new styles, new trends, and while they might not change season to season, you can certainly see a marked progression in the cut of the king's doublet, hose, and gowns from his accession to the end of his reign. Now, the king had a group of uh, craftsmen who were at his disposal, the most important being his tailor. Um, and the tailor would have worked in conjunction with his hosier. So one of them, in other words, made the gowns, the doublets, all of the things for the upper part of the body, and the hosier um, made the king's hose. So they'd have needed to work quite closely together because often the doublet and hose were made to match. In addition, he would have had... Um, a skinner, he had a milliner, he had a sempstress, he had silk men and women working for him, uh, people who supplied his shoes and jewellers, uh, a whole raft of suppliers. And again, the queen would have had a separate set of suppliers and a separate set of craftsmen. Um, partly because, of course, just the, de the demands of the volume of work that they would be providing to their craftsmen, but in particular with the role of tailor, um, while that office would have been held by a man for both the king and the queen, obviously making garments for a woman is going to... Uh, they are different in terms of their, their sort of cut, construction, and so tailors specialised as to whether they made clothes for men or women. So... To think about 
Anne Boleyn. Um, this is probably the best known image of her. Um, and I've put here a date of about uh, 1530. This is the date that is traditionally attached to it. Um, however, recent work has shown that it actually dates from towards the end of Elizabeth's reign. So sort of 15, or a range of them from the sort of 1580s and 1590s. So again, this is one of the things to keep, keep in mind when I was talking about um, the problem of working with portraits. And in particular, the vast majority that we have of Anne all seem to be copies of an original that has been lost. Now, there have been various suggestions, um, and in particular by George Bernard, who thinks that this is going to be a lost Holbein, and it's most likely that Anne would have been painted by Holbein. Now, this gives us um, the sort of the iconic image that comes to mind of Anne Boleyn. So, um, dark hair, which wasn't considered um, a feature of great beauty at the Tudor court, um, blonde hair, fair skin, blue eyes. That was the classic Tudor view of, um, of, of both male and female beauty at this point. And Anne, in that sense, was vulnerable to criticism from uh, those who disliked her at court by saying that she was dark, dark eyes, dark hair, slightly swarthy skin. So, but in spite of going against the sort of contemporary tastes as what was beautiful in a woman, she clearly had a major spark of personality that drew her to everybody's attention at court. And in addition, um, the education that she'd had in Europe, both in the Low Countries and France, ensured that she was a gifted courtier so she could dance, um, play musical instruments, she could deport herself well, she could converse with anybody, she was well-read, witty, educated and captivating. This is what all of the sort of contemporary sources say about her. But in terms of thinking about her appearance, they also say that she was a promoter of French style and French fashion and in part that she would have come across this while she was um, in France. Now one of the key things that she is often associated with is the introduction of the French hood which you can see her wearing here. Um, however there is much evidence to suggest that this actually is not the case and I will come back to that slightly later. Um, but in terms of if we were thinking about, again, what she's wearing, in addition to the French hood, um, and of course at the time the French hood was considered to be slightly risque because it revealed a lady's hair at the front, um, we have the traditional low square neckline, uh, the fitted bodice. Um, in some of the versions of this portrait you can see the heads of the pins securing the side. Um, and of course, the famous B for Berlin necklace. So, and here we can see her using her jewellery to promote her family interests at court. And of course, this is one of the reasons um, why monarchs were always slightly wary of marrying an English bride. If you marry an English bride, she has an English family, all of whom are seeking promotion and preferment at court. And Anne was very effective at ensuring the promotion of her, her family interest. Now, once Anne had caught the king's eye after she returns to the English court, we move into this period of 
courtship, the king's courtship of her. And this results in um, a series of letters. Now, Henry, um, early on in his career, admits that he finds writing rather painful and tedious, and you can probably tell that by looking at his handwriting. Um, But we have this series of letters that he writes to her um, where he is um, declaring his love for her. Now, obviously, these are highly personal in terms of their content. They're not necessarily the sort of thing that you would dictate to somebody else. Um, But they also give us some insights into the nature of their relationship. And in particular, how he goes about courting Anne and how it becomes apparent to those at court that she has his attention and his favour. And to give you an example, some of the things that he talks about in the letters are sending her gifts of jewellery. Now, the sorts of jewellery that he talks about, he talks about bracelets. um, And I've given you an example here. These are actually hat badges, but they give you an idea of the sort of techniques that may well have been on those bracelets, where um, they're talking about... um, enamelled work and more importantly in one of Anne's own letters back to him she refers to herself as a ship tossed on a sea and that very much gives you that sense of even there that she's aware that the king's affection while she has it is a wonderful thing but once withdrawn it has the potential to be her undoing and already in those letters you get that slight sense of um that she's aware that it is a a dangerous game she's playing. So in addition to to jewellery, Henry also sends her gifts of food, um, in particular gifts of uh, meat that he's killed in the hunt with cries of, killed this for you, dear, Uh, have this fresh fresh meat. Um, He also buys her clothes. um, And I'll come back to this image later, but here... um, One of the things that is seen to be very interesting about this image of Anne, and for a long time there was much debate as to whether it could be Anne because it is such an informal image. Here we have a woman wearing a coif. Um, You can see her high-necked smock here. And then over it, one of these loose gowns that you'd have worn within your chamber um, for (laughs) informal attire. So potentially either in the morning in the evening, um, but essentially when you were relaxing. And Henry buys um, or orders several of these nightgowns for Anne uh, from his privy purse, and um, he orders them from John Scutt, who is the Queen's tailor. So in other words, Catherine of Aragon's tailor. Well, if you want the best and you want what's in fashion, who do you go to? the Queen's tailor. He is the man who makes um, clothes for the Queen and who is going to be sort of setting the the fashionable note at court. Um, And so Henry orders these from Scott and we know from the cost in the Privy Purse that they were hugely expensive. Uh, So lined with sable, uh, decorated with velvet guards. Um, And of course it's very unlikely that these would have been a secret Um, so in that sense it also is a rather unkind thing to do in that you are going to your wife's tailor to make the clothes for the woman that you wish to replace her with. Now I mentioned that um, Anne is often associated with the French hood and certainly she is the one who is seen to wear it at court. She's usually painted in it, not exclusively so, Um, but certainly we know that um, obviously Henry's sister Mary, who uh, marries 
Louis the Fourteenth, um, sorry, Louis the Twelfth. Um, she, when she comes back from France, brings many French tastes with her, and so it's as likely that the French hood could would have returned to England uh, with um, Mary as with Anne. But the key thing is that Anne is very much associated with the French hood, so much so that when Jane Seymour becomes queen, she is very clear that she does not want those women on, in attendance on her to wear it. And so in that sense, she sort of marks herself out as being different from Anne by not wearing it. And indeed, Anne, by wearing the French hood, marks herself out as different from Catherine of Aragon, who was usually depicted but not exclusively, but usually in the gable hood. So if we move on to think about how Anne established her position at court, um, she did so um, predominantly uh, visually. So the ambassadors, um, other courtiers, the things that they notice are the changes in the sumptuousness of her apartments, where her apartments are located within the, the royal palace, and in particular, what she's wearing, um, how much um, plate the king has given her to display in her chambers. And one of the key points where we really know that she is um, destined to become queen is at the meeting with Francis I in 1532. Um, in 1520, Henry had met with Francis at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, and he had been accompanied by Catherine. When he goes to meet Francis in 1532, he doesn't want to take Catherine, um, chiefly because one of the reasons they're going is to seek Francis's support for an annulment of the marriage to Catherine. Um, but he does want to take Anne with him. And in order to give Anne an appropriate level of status in order to take her, he creates her Marchioness of Pembroke before they go. And we have very detailed descriptions of the robes that are made for her. So the purple robes of um, rank that marked her out as a Marchioness. So if we move on to think about um, all of these events, bring us to the point where... Henry decides that um, he's going to seek an annulment, um, and when he cannot achieve that, um, he opts for seeking um, Cranmer. Sorry, Cranmer dissolves, uh, declares the marriage null and void, and that the, then that it is legitimate for Henry to marry Anne. So once Anne is queen, or rather, when she sorry, when she is the marriage to Henry. We know that there is one, um, but we have essentially no descriptions of what she wore. In that sense, it's a very um, private affair. Like many of the king's other marriages, it wasn't a requirement for Tudor royal weddings to be public. Um, in that sense, probably the key examples of public royal weddings at this period are Arthur's marriage to Catherine of Aragon and Henry's marriage to Anne of Cleves. Um, most of his other marriages are relatively simple private affairs taking place in the privy closet. However, um, after the marriage, uh, once it becomes known that Anne is with child, Henry goes ahead with the, Anne's coronation. And she goes in procession 
through London. So whereas the wedding was a very private affair, um, the coronation profession, procession is a much more magnificent occasion. Um, in one sense, it has to be. This is the woman that Henry has broken with Rome for, and he needs to assert that she is his rightful queen. Now, there is a very interesting discussion that takes place between Anne and her father shortly before the coronation. Anne is contemplating inserting an extra pane of fabric into the gown that she's going to wear uh, because her pregnancy is showing and she wishes to conceal it, whereas her father says that she should not do this, that one of the things that is going to... that makes her... Um, acceptable as the new queen is that she is with child of course they are hoping that it will be the son that Henry wants and that England wants um, now obviously we know with hindsight that that is not the case um, but it shows you very clearly the sort of the sense of um, should a queen be pregnant when she goes for her coronation procession and if so should it be something that you should seek to conceal or to make apparent to all who could see you. Um, now, I've given you examples here of cloth of tissue. Uh, if you think back to the fabric that was on the hawk hood, here you can see a much bigger example and in much better condition, and also an example of cloth of gold. These are the sorts of fabrics that were reserved for these key royal ceremonies in Tudor England, um, and they were hugely expensive because they incorporate metal thread um, and at various points we know that fabrics of this sort could be burnt to recover the metal content um, so that gives you an indication of just how valuable they were perceived to be now um, on the whole uh, Anne's coronation procession goes incredibly well. Um, it is led out by the French ambassador, so again stressing her links to France. Um, and there are many people who are there lining the streets to, to meet her, um, to witness the um, arrival by barge and the pageantry on the Thames that takes place beforehand. Um, however, not everybody, of course, is a supporter of this second marriage. And one of the things that contemporaries commented about was that, of course, the H and K that had been used to um, adorn royal buildings um, for Henry and Catherine had been replaced with H and A for Henry and Anne. And various people said, ha, you know, it'll never last. It, she is not our true queen. Um, and so already at that point, people were saying that, you know, the that it wasn't a completely respectful response to the coronation procession. Um, now, this um, sadly unflattering drawing of Anne um, shows you her, the Queen at her coronation banquet. Now, when Henry is crowned, he has a joint coronation with Catherine of Aragon. Um, when Anne is crowned, she is crowned alone. And so this means that when she dines in a state, for instance, after her coronation in Westminster Hall, she does so by herself. And there are descriptions of the king sort of looking down, not wanting to sort of steal her, her glory on this occasion by being present. She is very much at the centre of attention. And this would be one of the key occasions where she would... Um, dine in a state with her robes. Now, obviously, the key focus of this marriage was 
the birth of a son. Now, unfortunately, as you know, um, Anne's child wasn't. It was a girl. And it meant that where all the letters announcing the birth of the child had been written in advance and they proudly announced the birth of a son, a prince, there someone had to go through and insert ES, princess. And, and if you look at the letters, you can see this little sort of insertion where they've had to sort of correct them afterwards. Now, unfortunately, we don't have an image of the procession that would have taken place for Elizabeth's coronation. So instead, I'm showing you the one from Edwards. But in essence, the form would have been the same. Um, so what you would have seen is the baby being carried. Um, and the reason why there's such a scrum under there is that, of course, you've got the three godparents for the christening and then the three godparents for the confirmation. And christening would be followed immediately by confirmation. And so they're all under the, the canopy. And then you have the sort of the key members of court following behind. So in that sense, the um, christening of Elizabeth is obviously, on the one hand, a disappointment. It isn't the hoped-for son, but it is still an opportunity for pageantry associated with Anne and her child. And, of course, the key thing is that Elizabeth displaces Mary from the immediate line of succession. So if we think about other consequences, the sort of short-time consequences of the, the courtship... Um, Elizabeth herself. Now, one of the areas where we can look at um, Anne's accounts, they show us the payments for her daughter in those sort of early months after her birth and sort of shortly after. And we get the impression that Anne was obviously doted on her daughter. There are descriptions of purchases of little caps, little clothes, and the boat being sent backwards and forwards between sort of Greenwich and Whitehall to go and get little things for her, her daughter. Now, obviously, after her mother's death, we then know that the uh, situation in terms of Elizabeth's clothing becomes really very difficult, and it gets to the point where... Um, the uh, lady who's in charge of her has to write to the king and say that she just does not have appropriate clothing to look after, you know, the king's daughter, and he really needs to intervene. Um, but this just makes me want to say briefly that one of the chief problems that we have with studying Anne Boleyn's clothing um, on a sort of everyday basis is that we do not have the sorts of documents that we have for Henry VIII. So whereas we have those records for his great wardrobe, we do not have anything really comparable for Anne. Now, one possible reason for this is, of course, the nature of her death. Um, because she was uh, found guilty of treason, her household was dissolved, um, and it is potentially at that point that a number of its records were potentially either seized or lost or destroyed. But certainly we have very little material relating to Anne's household as queen. Um, and in that sense, that is very similar to the position we have for Henry's, for all of Henry's wives, with the exception of Catherine of Aragon, where we have a modest amount. For most of the others, what survives is remarkably fragmentary. Um, and so this is why you find that people look so much at the few portraits and the few little scraps of evidence that we do have. Um, I come back to this image because, as I mentioned, one of the reasons why it took so long for this image to be uh, confidently um, 
decided to be Anne Boleyn was uh, the fact that she was depicted in such an unqueenly fashion. Um, and it brings, about, it brings to mind some of the accusations that are brought against her. Um, as you know, that she was accused of adultery and incest with her brother. And one of the reasons why uh, she was vulnerable to charges like this was that she was considered to be um, a little less uh, rigorous than she might have been in um, how she dressed and where. So the fact that she might be seen within some of her privy apartments dressed in her nightgown, even though those were the nightgowns that Henry would have given to her during their courtship, um, you know, what is fine when he's giving her the gift, then depending on whatever context it's seen in, uh, can be interpreted as um, a sense of a sort of degree of laxity within her household. So just to sort of draw to a conclusion, obviously the final point of Anne's life um, is her arrest, trial and execution. And um, one of the sort of four points in terms of preparing people in 1536 that all was not secure with um, the Boleyns was that in April of that year it was thought that her brother George would be elected to the Order of the Garter. He isn't. Instead, uh, a member of the pro-Spanish, pro-Aragonese, pro-Catherine of Aragon faction is elected instead. And I'm showing you this image of the Order of the Garter because it includes uh, one of the little figures processing at the front. He has red hair like his father. It is thought to be Henry Fitzroy. Um, and of course, Henry Fitzroy is one of the people who attends Anne's execution. Um, there are a number of reasons why the king would not attend such an event himself, but it, he did need to be seen that there were various key people there to witness the event, and one of whom was Henry Fitzroy. Um, so I give you here um, a 19th century image. Um, Anne's story became hugely um, evocative, and romanticised in much 19th century art. And you have images such as this of Anne in the tower prior to her execution. Um, and we know that she took the, the time prior to her execution uh, was spent very carefully in, in prayer, in contemplation. Um, she asks specifically for... Um, a swordsman to come from France rather than to be beheaded with an axe. And in her final act, she chooses her clothes with exceptional care um, so that when she processes out from her rooms within the tower to her place of execution, uh, she has um, a fur-trimmed gown. And when she removes that, um, it reveals carefully chosen clothes underneath, which sort of a degree of sort of defiance. So while on the one hand, the thing, everything she says at her execution is exactly as it ought to be, um, careful to do her best to protect those around her. Um, but in terms of how she chooses to dress for her execution, it's very clear that she still sees herself very much as the king's wife and uh, queen. 
So the final sort of consequences of uh, Anne's demise, obviously um, Henry goes almost immediately from hearing of Anne's death to visit Jane Seymour. And Jane, of course, produces the son. And more importantly, here we can see elements of her style where she again moves away. So um, here we see her very much in that gable style hood. Um, so again, very much asserting an English style of dress as opposed to the more French style favoured by Anne or the more Spanish style favoured by Catherine of Aragon. So a queen could use her clothing to shape her identity at court. And her son, of course, the key thing that ensured um, her place um, in the king's affections, and we know that he planned to have her crowned, but unfortunately plague in London meant that she couldn't be crowned before Edward was born, and of course she doesn't survive to have her coronation afterwards. Um, but in one sense, one of the key factors in terms of how Anne is thought about is um, the accession of her daughter Elizabeth to the throne. It's during Elizabeth's reign that many of the copies of the portraits of Anne that we have are produced. At that point, people want to have a portrait of the mother of their queen on their wall in their long gallery. And so this is why um, we end up with a number of images of Anne. But increasingly, you see that many of them become sort of less and less realistic in their portrayal. We also, in that sense, in one, on the one hand, Elizabeth is quite reticent about how much she refers to her mother. In that sense, she doesn't make many overt references. There is a ring that um, is thought to be the Queen's, which includes a portrait of Elizabeth and a portrait of Anne Boleyn. There is also a pair of virginals, which incorporates Anne Boleyn's arms and also has Elizabeth's motifs on. So in that sense... There, is, there are some hints at how she must have thought about her mother, but she was very careful not to overtly come out in support of her mother because obviously that would have been a criticism of her father. And I'd like to conclude by showing you this image, um, which shows that Anne is exceptionally popular now. Um, she is a woman who, um, through her perceived um, determination use of her intellect, um, her ability to manage the political side of court life. Um, she'd become a very iconic figure on a number of uh, websites. Um, and equally, of course, in her how she was depicted in the Tudors. And the reason I've included these is that you can actually buy swatches of the fabrics from her costumes from the Tudors. So in that sense, it shows you that while there was an interest in what she was wearing in the 16th century, there's still very much an interest in what a 21st century Anne has been wearing. And um, I assure you, they, they sell for quite high prices, uh, sh should you want one. Um, and so I think the key here is that it shows you that how Anne created her image in the 16th century was a com through a combination of her wit, her intellect, but also how she presented herself. And clothing was central to that. And clothing is still seen as central in terms of how people depict her in modern productions, either of, for instance, the Tudors or in um, productions of Henry VIII, uh, Shakespeare's Henry VIII or um, operas, let's say, Anna Bolina. So in that sense, 
her clothing, and in particular the iconic bee brooch, is seen as a sort of the quintessential uh, image of Anne Boleyn. So thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>